is Criminal Behaviorology, a combination of criminology and behavior analysis to assist the criminal and civil justice systems to improve our society in general, a podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Marilyn, how are you? I'm good. Pretty hot here in Michigan. Well, you're in Michigan too, right? Yes, I'm over here on the western side. You're on the eastern side. Yeah. It's been about 80 degrees. Oh, it's uh, cooler there then. It's like 88 right now. And oh my! It's gonna get hotter in the next few days. Oh my! Well, I. Uh... I guess you're getting the uh, hot portion of the state over on the east side. I guess so. Yeah. We don't have the lake close, so. Okay. Uh, if it's okay with you, could I just start? Uh, I've got yeah. the recorder running, and if I could just ask you a few things. You uh, wrote uh, the study, A Behavioral Approach to Understanding Domestic Violence, in 2008 with two other co-authors. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we found that to be quite interesting it has to do with domestic violence and operant conditioning can you maybe give us a a kind of a general view of of i don't know the models and intervention programs for domestic violence what what has been the traditional view and uh, maybe to talk a little bit about the duluth model and the cbt model okay sure uh so uh i think that the more traditional model is called the duluth model and uh, that's actually, I think at one time, was law in like 35 states. I'm not sure if that changed. Um, but it's all based on kind of a personality theory that people who engage in domestic violence against a victim are have a personality disorder. We used to call them sociopaths. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's one point of view and a very traditional point of view. The behavioral view on everything is quite different than traditional psychology and make some assumptions. Uh, the assumptions that it makes are that learn that uh, that pretty much all voluntary behaviors are learned, mm-hmm. and they're learned either through classical or operant conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so, with the operant model, what that would mean is that well, and if the behaviors are voluntary, mm-hmm. um, and we consider domestic violence to be a behavior that some people choose to engage in, so. Right. It is, uh, you know, intentional mm-hmm. behavior, and so therefore the assumption is that there's some, it's getting rewarded somehow. Right. So we did a study that was just an assessment piece that has some implications for what we could do with intervention. Uh, a lot of, so so kind of moving over to the clinic, uh, to the uh, cognitive behavior therapy model, mm-hmm. which is behavioral and based on operant and classical conditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that focus, I think, in domestic violence has been in helping the, the victim overcome the trauma that they've experienced. Right. And so that part of it is more classical conditioning. But our focus was on the behavior of the victimizer or uh-huh. the perpetrator. And so we wanted to try to see if we could understand, first of all, whether this personality theory would be correct and secondly if there were um, different rewards that might apply to different individuals Mm -hmm. and so we started out by asking a lot of questions about what were the antecedents to the behavior and we had a like a a checklist a a rating scale uh for the and we asked the uh is that the, batter- the perpetrator? The perpetrators, excuse me. Marilyn, is that the battering assessment tool? The yeah, bat- that's the battering assessment tool that was um, the data were incorporated in that article. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, the battering assessment tool asked about a lot of antecedents, and they asked the perpetrators to basically rate the extent to which different events preceded their abusive behavior. Uh-huh. And so those were in categories of uh, emotions, negative emotions that they were 
experiencing um, had also to do with things that were frustrating them or and maybe even the behavior of other people, things that had gone wrong in their life outside the relationship uh, immediately before. So kind of like what, what sorts of um, emotions were they experiencing, what sorts of situations were they experiencing, and could those lead us to assume then that if the if the if the victimization occurred immediately following those events, then mm-hmm. we could make some assumptions about what was rewarding the behavior. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of uh, so 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 basically, what we found in that survey is that, and I'm not quite remembering the exact percentages, but in the vast majority of percentages. Of, of perpetrators, and we had a, interviewed or, or we had about 75 people um, answer the, the questionnaire. Uh, we found that in the vast majority of people, it was a combination of negative emotions mm-hmm. that that person was experiencing for whatever reason, mm-hmm. combined with the behavior of um, their partner or other people in their immediate environment. And then to the extent that they endorsed um, consequences, then um, it made them feel better for a short period of time. It relieved the emotional pressure or got the person to stop doing something that was um, annoying them or upsetting them or hurting them. And um, so we did find that um, that maybe in some cases... It, perhaps even in a large percent of cases, that it wasn't so unreasonable what they were trying to do, mm-hmm. um, alleviate their negative emotions, mm-hmm. get their partner to do something or stop doing something or provide mm-hmm. some emotional support. But it was that they were, so their needs weren't so inappropriate. It was the inappropriate thing was very inappropriate way that they were going about doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I guess then the implications of that would be that uh, if you could teach people alternative methods, mm-hmm. um, such as, um, I don't know if your your uh, listeners are familiar with dialectic behavior therapy, for example. So um, uh, like maybe uh, you, you would do some kind of differential reinforcement. Yeah, that may, or maybe we would teach them, yes, exactly, we would teach them other behaviors, um, other impersonal. Usually, I think it, those other behaviors would be coping skills that would help them regulate their emotions mm-hmm. and also um, more direct forms of communication with their partners and um and let's, uh, you know, I mean, trying to trying to find ways of um, positively approaching their partners and getting, um, you know, getting getting changes in behavior through that means. Um, and I'm, I don't know if you want, I, I don't probably need to go into too much detail about what that would entail. Well, uh, I'm I'm, sure. I think I think you're doing okay. I just just to recap, this is already quite a bit different than say a, a just a personality typology or or i would assume the idea of the the personality is we would identify which type of people would become batterers and then you could just stay away from them or we'd keep a close eye on them or something well well this viewpoint is saying we need to look more at the learning history and the environment that the batterers are in and and maybe they're not that much different than other people that don't batter, than men that don't batter. It's just a matter of their learning history and how what we can do with the environment. Is that a good, is that an adequate? Yeah, yes, yeah. so their learning history, both in terms of the behavior repertoire that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the skill set that, that is deficit, as well as their learning history with regard to this behavior works. Mm-hmm. So um, we're kind of battling against both kinds of learning history that that the battering um, works to impact their partner and works to 
at least momentarily alleviate their their feelings, makes them feel in control, perhaps even. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of battling against that, but sort of thinking in terms of substituting uh-huh. that behavior for other more appropriate. So building their their skill set and their their repertoire of coping skills and communication skills. Um. When you did the study, did you were these uh, batterers court ordered, or I mean, how did they become cooperative? Yes. They yes. were court ordered, and they were you yeah, did... they were court ordered to participate in um, in a city in Michigan, uh-huh. um, and um, they were in a program they were required to attend, and we did find some small subset of people who were just. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, we got, for example, a couple of threatening messages on some okay. of the, on one or two of the uh, yeah. the rating scales. Um, so I'm sure that there is a small subset of people, and some of the indicators were there in terms of answers, the way that they answered the uh, the rating scale. So I think that there are some subset of people who were like they're they're the degree to, of demand that they would require or of their partner would be outrageously unreasonable. And so, and, and actually those people probably have better skills to accomplish. You know what I'm saying there? You know, sometimes the sociopaths, people with personality disorders, sometimes are very charming individuals, very engaging and right. very... You know, they know exactly how to control someone else. I, I, um, I was just about like kind of a as an aside, not too far aside, but from a behavioral point of view, what is a, a sociopathic or psychopathic personality? <laughs> what what is that? Would you say? I I I am not sure because it's you know not. Um, I think. Um, I'm not sure that I can answer it, but if I had to give it my best guess in terms of any kind of reading that I've done and, and just behavior theory in general, sort of sticking with that behavioral framework, I would say that usually it's people who have experienced some kinds of trauma or evaluation for long periods of time in their early life, and they grew up or they were spent long periods of time in some very dysfunctional mm-hmm. situations, and as a result, they have emotional wounds that um, kind of leave them very, very needy compared to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that pre- pretty much captures the, the spectrum of personality disorders in a general way. Right. Uh, yeah. And um, very, very needy, mm-hmm. emotionally needy. Um, and also they've developed patterns of behavior that you and I would consider dysfunctional. Right. But really those patterns of that kind of a misnomer to call them dysfunctional uh-huh. because really for them in serving their needs, those patterns of behavior are very functional in an upright conditioning sense. Right. If, does that make sense to you? Yeah, that I was gonna uh, that's very well put. I was gonna say that if it's anything, it is that the developed talent to do all these things, to lie uh, effectively, to manipulate, to intimidate, uh, uh-huh. to to do all these things that we attribute to sociopathic behavior, and then right. the, the skill deficits of just not being able to do things just the the right way, or to do them the socially acceptable way, and and that probably comes from those things that you described of a traumatic history or a history of a lot of antisocial behavior around you. so Yeah, so they can get their part. They, they don't have a problem getting their partner to do what they want them to do, mm-hmm. I don't think. But I think that whatever their partner does never really satisfies their emotional need in terms of their attachment mm-hmm. because they're, I don't know, either not capable of having that kind of emotion or... Um, they just have a lot of healing to do, or as I'm now kind of getting to, you know, it's hard to talk about it from a behavioral point without kind of getting into the mentalistic lingo right. there a little bit. But, right. 
it's it's yeah to talk about the social problems it's almost uh, impossible to avoid some kind of mentalistic language on it i i've encountered that mm-hmm. myself and i would say that their deficit lies more in their in their ability to cope with their emotional you know to 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 regulate their emotions to right right their own emotions um uh for for the bat uh, back to so your findings from the from the bat were the there were probably a whole lot of batterers that just didn't have these sociopathic tendencies another way to say it your findings that there was that i think would be right. surprising to people or those that had researched this for many years is there was a whole lot that just didn't have significant personality problems whatever those are yes there were a the vast majority of people were People that just didn't have skills, didn't mm-hmm. have communication skills, didn't have some. Um, I mean, and it was hard to this. This the scale was not designed to to differentiate between, you know, sociopaths and um, and um, uh, typical people. Right. But it was. Um, but if you kind of looked more subjectively at the items that were endorsed. I, I think that you would see that pattern, or at least, at least, let's just say this: that there was evidence for potential to that at least if people could identify the antecedents that um, that led to the abuse, you could make a reasonable conclusion that perhaps you could teach some other behaviors that would uh, would get at that. I, I think that the only way to maybe um, I think the only way to maybe get at that question, sociopath versus um, healthy person, is um, maybe questions regarding what their attitudes were about what what was reason, what were what would be reasonable expectations mm-hmm. of a partner, mm-hmm. and our questionnaire didn't really ask those mm-hmm. questions. But some of the questions did seem like reasonable things, like if your partner was hitting you and you hit them back, it it would be reasonably, it would be an appropriate need to have them stop hitting you. But going about it by hitting them back isn't going to really solve it. I mean, it perhaps could get them to stop hitting you, but it's not a real solution. Mm-hmm. Um, getting your a partner to show you love and affection seems like a reasonable need, but there are a whole lot better ways of getting that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, expecting that your partner is going to want to have sex with you is a reasonable need in an intimate relationship, um, at least on a you know, if it's not on a too super frequent basis, mm-hmm. um, but you know, there's certainly you would think of other more um, <laughs> other kinds of skills other than certainly you're not going to put them in the mood probably. Yeah, engaging in that behavior. So, um, uh, it's... so those were the kinds of things. Like we did have questions about my partner's doing this, my partner's not doing that, and most of them were stated could be interpreted as reasonable, um, you know, reasonable things that you would want your partner to do and you would do for each other. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it could, it could develop into something that looks very much like when we have other plans for severe problem behavior. You know the setting, you know the topography, you know uh, you have an idea of what to reinforce that's different than the usual pattern of behavior. Is, uh-huh. Right. And it's very different from the Duluth model because my observations of the Duluth model were you get a bunch of people in a circle, you assume that they're sociopaths, and then you have discussions, and then you kind of force them to be accountable and to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that's how, that's the session I observed where someone said something that, didn't seem like they were taking responsibility, then the facilitators would kind of call them out and say, no, it doesn't sound like you're being accountable for your own behavior. And Mm so it seemed like to me, um, and this is another operant conditioning concept of verbal behavior, 
that I'm sure that you can teach people to talk the right way. Yeah. But is that is that really going to, you know, you can get people to say what they need to say, and especially if they are sociopaths, because they're yeah. crafty about, you know, what they need to do. Yeah. So, so I just don't see how, how um, shaping someone's verbal behavior is going to translate into them being less abusive when they go. I mean, that's a lot of generalization to mm-hmm. have happen. Mm-hmm. And the behaviors are very different. The verbal behavior is very different. Yeah. Um, than that, than, than the abuse. So, uh, Is this a concept that it could be based on operant conditioning? Is this uh, an explanation for why the traditional programs like you described for batterers have not been very successful? Yeah, I think it could be. I think that you could do use this. I mean, that was kind of the intention or, you know, the idea behind it is that you could sort of sort people out in terms of uh, who um, who was battering primarily to deal with their negative emotions, who mm-hmm. was battering because they lack control in their everyday life, who was battering because they were trying to get their spouse's attention or affection, who was battering to try to get their spouse to stop yelling at them or kidding them. Mm-hmm. And so then I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of reality that could be applied to that. And I think mostly in terms of dialectic behavior therapy, the interpersonal skills part of things, um, assertiveness training, um, people to do things um, and the emotion regulation skills that are included in that mm-hmm. that program mm-hmm. uh, apply also did your results find that uh, the, the, the batterers had a, a, an awareness of what was rewarding their their abusive behavior did they have an understanding of that or were they kind of disconnected from that they were kind of disconnected from that. They were pretty good at identifying the antecedent events mm-hmm. and conditions, how they felt beforehand, um, what they felt elicited the be or evoked the behavior, I guess you'd say. And but they were kind of at a disconnect with, oh, now I feel more in control, or now I feel um, less depressed, or less anxious, or less frustrated, or now my partner is doing what I want them to be doing, mm-hmm. and um, and so you know they don't recognize the consequences. Much the same way that I think in other areas where people they know they eat for eating, for example, emotional eating. You know they know they eat when they're anxious or they're nervous or they're bored, but they don't pay attention to that immediate relief of that feeling once they do it's a, yeah it's another th- kind of uh indicator to me the of that operant conditioning has to do with violent behavior like this because it's a lot like we, we i guess we'd say we don't tend to uh think too much about why we do the things we like to do or are, are very motivated to do we might think about justifications for it or things we have to say to make it happen but the, an awareness of why we uh, are conditioned or why we like to do something we tend not to be so uh, so conscious of that I guess I would put yeah it. like you almost just look like take for granted the yeah. reward rewarding yeah. consequences yeah um but I mean, I think that if you asked people, if you made it more salient to them, mm-hmm. if you said, okay, so you say that your abuse happens when your anxiety reaches this level where you're feeling overwhelmed, mm-hmm. um, then when you hit your spouse, then are you relieved of that anxiety for a, a little while? Mm-hmm. I think they would answer yes. I just don't think that they in, they don't observe it without you pointing to mm-hmm. that consequence for them. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe that's a, a another area avenue is is to sort of teach people what it what their motivation is because mm-hmm. the motivation is about 
the reward and usually it's you know i mean basically it's negative reinforcement in this case yeah. right yeah you could look it's at all negative reinforcement pretty much i mean there are some times when you know maybe they are trying to get their spouse to have sex with them uh-huh. maybe you know there's a few positive reinforcers mixed in there uh-huh. but for the most part they're using it to alleviate uh, and in and that to alleviate uh, social situations yeah. as well as emotional situations. Well, well, getting. But, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, lost my train of thought. Sorry. Oh, I, I interrupted that. Well, uh, you were mm-hmm. talking about negative reinforcement about getting the uh, getting the uh, abused victim, getting their their wife to have less contact with her family and friends. Is that a negative reinforcement? Uh, um, if you hmm. batter and then she has... Well, left. that's a good question. And I would say that that happens more often in those cases of the true sociopath. Uh-huh. Because they're not... Um, because a lot of these people are kind of responding to like momentary things. But when you think about getting... I, I don't think that they abuse to get them... Well, they might abuse to get them to spend less time, but... They usually create other mechanisms to cut their spouse off. Uh-huh. It's called insul- insularity or uh-huh. insulating, and so that seems like that is more of a more of a planned out strategy rather than. Uh-huh. Mo- the, I think that the people that can be helped most are these people who are just kind of acting in the moment. There's. Uh-huh. You know, maybe a situation that builds up to a crescendo, and then they just can't handle it anymore, and then they behave in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would seem to me like getting keeping people away from other people. Uh, I don't know if that's a strategy that uh, by the by the vast majority of the people, I don't think that, I think that would be more the sociopathic type. Okay. I think there is a sociopathic type for sure. Right. right. And then I don't know what's to help those. I, the only thing I can think of is really just get the person out of that environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had a chance to uh, speak with uh, victims of abuse about your findings and, and what has been their reaction? Well, um, that is interesting. Actually, um some of the people, not the authors on this paper, but um, when I when we first started to do something, actually the impetus for it was um, uh, these four or five women students uh, that I just happened to have in class um, that had been victims, and so we uh, designed a lot of the questions based on their personal experience and their experiences with other women that they knew. And, you know, of course, the victims are don't, aren't necessarily women, but they are predominantly women. Right. Um, so at any rate, um, that's kind of where we came up with uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the questions. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was kind of always something that we wanted to do. But there were some ethical considerations. So what we wanted to do originally was give the survey to the perpetrators and give it to their victims and then match up Uh um, the extent to which both the perpetrator and the victim in any particular dyad would endorse the scheme antecedents and consequences i think that would be incredibly interesting and i'll bet they could mm-hmm. and that and that was one of the things that the, the women who were involved in helping us um think about study and and conduct it um those women were seeing kind of you know it's kind of a universal thing among abused women that they can predict it really well mm-hmm just um, but in part be predicted by the person's behavior. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can see the person getting, you know, gradually overwhelmed and mm-hmm. more easily frustrated, more easily angered, 
I don't know exactly, and it may be different in different situations, um, which behaviors predict. So maybe they're predicting it more from the behavior than they, from their spouse's behavior than from the actual, because they wouldn't necessarily have access to that person's private emotional state. Uh Um, Do you think it could be that the victims are so familiar with the antecedents that they can predict yeah. violence. Yeah, I think I think so. I think that in part, at least in part, is that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, and maybe they also. I mean, there, there generally is a period afterwards where the person is where the perpetrator is remorseful, and mm-hmm. maybe at that point they share what their emotions were leading up to, or you know, things like that. So maybe they know that way is that period of at least acting acting remorseful or or if it's genuine or that period of like um of lost the word but uh, kind of reunion or you know trying to make up for what they did is that a reinforcing agent that keeps the domestic violence relationship going I'm sure that I'm sure it is. Uh-huh. I'm sure that those promises, and of course, it's parallel to alcoholics and mm-hmm. gamblers and right. you know other individuals who perhaps really genuinely do have good intentions, but since they don't have the skills, when find themselves in that situation again, they only have one way of coping with it. So they resort right back to that behavior and aren't able to control it. I guess. But I'm sure that that's what keeps the victim, you know. And there's a secrecy thing, you know. And mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's um, maybe that is um, maybe there is some sort of, you know, maybe it does have the purpose of keeping the person away from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you know, in in many cases there are, um, you know, making the person feel. Um, inadequate, but again, I think that those are the things that the true sociopaths do. Mm-hmm. You know, keep them away from their family, make them feel like they're not good enough for anyone else. They're lucky to be in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, they're um, I'll promise not to do it again. I know I shouldn't do it anyway. I love you. I adore you. Uh, so, um, so I I, I don't know. Um, I don't know the extent to which that applies to the individuals I'm thinking of that could actually be helped. So, well, I guess I, I was going to say it seems so much like other kinds of, once again, like severe behavior problems where if people could see it from the outside. So you have this reinforcement and then you have all this violence, but a lot of behavior problems uh, it, there's this intermittent reinforcement. You you really don't see the the reward very often, or it's very that's hard true. to see. That's true. You just see the pride, and of course, well, that's what we see. So with a lot of these domestic violence situations, people are just seeing, and the police and all that, they're just seeing all the all the domestic violence, and they're thinking, why is this continuing? Why would that? Why could this go on for years and years like this when it just takes? Yeah, yeah, that's possible. I mean, that's. You know, kind of like what you see in children who tantrum, for example, right. highly, highly resistant to extinction behavior because of the intermittent reinforcement. But I don't know if that's true in this case, because mm-hmm. I would think if someone's hitting you that every time you're going to back off. I would think that mm-hmm. if you're if you're angry or you're frustrated, that every time it, you know, makes you feel better somehow. I think that... Um, I think that um, I don't know. There's like some, some so there's something to the physicality of it too. I think mm-hmm. I don't I don't know um, or the like the intensity of the emotion that's aroused. I mean, there's kind of a maybe there's like a a calm after the storm kind of right. thing. Like you know, it's pretty intense, and so then there's this wind up, and then the abuse, and then it's like mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'm exa- I've exhausted myself. Maybe right. I don't know. Right. And I mean, I'm sure that also I think that it's worth mentioning that even though I think that the 
function of the behavior and understanding more about the function of the behavior and even understanding that on an individualized basis, I think um, does provide tremendous opportunity to um, come up with a better model of treating people and getting them to stop that violence. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm sure it's an oversimplification as well. Yeah. It's a very dynamic, there's a lot of dynamics going on other than just the antecedents Uh and the consequences surrounding it. Yeah. Uh, Do you think uh, you will get, uh, for something, an idea like this, have you or would you receive criticism from people that follow a more traditional view? Would they accuse Uh, you of of not being sensitive to the victims or or perhaps even justifying the behavior of the perpetrators? Right. Uh, We definitely have gotten that, and that was definitely not our intention. Um, Again, um, that is... Um, we, we did encounter that sort of thing. We got turned down at a lot of places because when we would explain the model to people, they would say, are you saying that in some cases it's the behavior of the victim? Uh-huh. And we would say, well, um, not that the victim, that doesn't mean that the victim is to blame, that perhaps the victim had every reason to um you know, perhaps the victim was behaving completely appropriately and whatever that behavior was annoyed the person and then they um, victimized them. And we're certainly not condoning those sorts of situations. Um, but in cases where the victim is doing something that is um, that is hurtful, emotionally hurtful, physically hurtful to the other person, um, or they're being neglectful, they're being inattentive, or, um, and again, we're not saying that they deserve yeah. to be treated like this because they have behaved like that. Um, but, and that's why I think that maybe the intervention would have to involve both um, members of the couple that mm-hmm. if the perpetrator was trying new methods of communication to get the other person to do something, then it would be good to try to sensitize the victim to try to respond Mm -hmm. to those attempts Mm -hmm. um, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, just because the behavior of someone else is um, one of the antecedents leads to the violent behavior doesn't mean that we're blaming. Mm-hmm. But it's good not to deny it and ignore that if that's the case, just because we want to stay as far as we can with blaming. Um, but perhaps there are behaviors that the victim needs to change as well for their own safety. Mm-hmm. If, in fact, those behaviors are... Um, triggering the violence in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's a, you know, so there's a, yeah. there's probably a fine line, but right. you know, uh, I think that you can observe where that line is right. of blaming versus identifying. Yeah. If the victim's behavior is a part of the environment that we could change, that could change the abusive behavior. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's a, it's a, and very, I think that most, and I think most victims would, if they knew some yeah. behavior that they could change to yeah. avoid the violence, or um, or to reward more appropriate behavior, I think that they would do that. Yeah. Right. It's a very, uh, it's a very uh, sensitive concept to approach with people. If we're... As, but as long as what you're asking them to do falls within the range of, you know, appropriate expectations, let's mm-hmm. just say. We yeah. always have to add that. Yeah. Because if we say that, you know, the, the the perpetrator, you know, if you would just walk along that line yeah. in the middle of the sidewalk the way I asked you to, then you yeah. could avoid, that is not the kind of thing that we would condemn at yeah. all. So you always have to add the caveat of, as long as as long as you're 
asking the victim to discontinue some behavior that is reasonable for them to discontinue or to engage in some behavior that's reasonable to expect. Um, and and maybe the behavior change could be something more in the direction of greater independence. It could be, you know, being able to express what they feel in a, in a, yeah, in a yes, way that's yes. pr- productive. I suspect, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, that's absolutely true because I suspect, um, I was gonna, I was going to say something about the percentage of, relationships. I know that there's a pretty high percentage of, um, aside from uh, cases of domestic violence, that I know that couples that are in dissatisfied marriages, for example, mm-hmm. I know that there's um, uh, a, high per- a high frequency of coercive interactions on the part of both partners, most generally. Mm-hmm. So in a dysfunctional relationship, I would expect that you would be seeing um, a lot and a lot of negative reinforcement going on, and that's what I mean by coercive interchanges, uh-huh. where I'll get in your face and intimidate you until you do what I want, but the other partner's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suspect that there's a fair number, not all, but I mean, I suspect that there are at least some cases where um, that's going on, and I would think even in other cases where there isn't a lot of coercive back and forth, that still both people could benefit from some interpersonal relationship mm-hmm. skills training, um, learning to say or learning to ask your partner to do things in a manner that's going to be effective. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, talking mm-hmm. from the dialectic behavior therapy, right. you know, you said that you were going to do this. You said you were going to be home by dinner. You didn't get home till 11. It makes me feel, so the I statement, that makes me feel bad and worried about you or that you're taking me for granted. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need you to call next time. So you're saying what you need them to do. And, you know, this business of, you know, um, just character assassinations and yelling at the person, you know, I mean, I think that people do those things, but if you ask them, does that ever work? You know, uh-huh. they know it doesn't work, but they right. can't help but falling into those patterns right. anyway. Yeah. And and so getting the other person to do what you would like them to do and doesn't mean that they're always going to work. Sometimes they just can say no. Um, and, um, but if you could be more effective at getting your needs met by, you know, by asking in a direct fashion and, and, um, seeing, you know, how that's going to make things better, how that's going to improve the relationship or how that's going to you better and, and then to, to negotiate those things. And then getting people to accept no. You know, you've asked me to do that a lot of times, and I already have said no, and my answer is not going to change. Um, Those kinds of direct communications on the part of both parties, I suspect, are needed because, I mean, I don't suspect too many people enter into relationships with someone who has zero communication skills, and that person has really good communication skills. There's Probably both people have yeah. some deficits, is yeah. my guess. They're about equally uh, in deficit in that area, probably. I would think. Yeah. Where would you see research like this going in the future? I mean, how, how can we press this forward? What would you... Um, well, I would see that research could go in a great direction if could use that battery tool or something like that to... Um, I would think... Um, maybe some sort of comprehensive program with a variety of different components, maybe one component helping people regulate their own emotions, maybe another component um, teaching people interpersonal relationship skills, maybe another component, um, you know, I don't know, time management or something Uh to kind of decrease their anxiety level or... um, so there might be a few different components, and then I would think that you would sort of 
um, identify which antecedents people had, mm-hmm. had the uh, perpetrators had the most trouble with, um, and then you know, kind of assess their skill level in each of those areas, and then mm-hmm. sort of do some some expose them to whichever modules applied if they were you know if they were good with their interpersonal skills but they couldn't regulate their own emotions and maybe just that component uh, and then maybe do some outcome things where um, well you could compare it to people who went through the Duluth model um, but you know research is difficult in that area because you'd be primarily measuring recidivism rates mm-hmm. right and it's not mm-hmm. easy to get your hands on those kind of data mm-hmm. um, and um, and it's a tricky ethical area too I mean you wouldn't want to um, I, I don't know you know I could see it's a new model it's an experimental model so mm-hmm. um you know, anticipating what what the, any negative um, results of the interventions, uh, uh, you'd want to try to try to do that. But mm-hmm. I, I would think that some sort of treatment model, some sort of outcome research, where maybe you could measure something other than. I mean, you might just be able to measure. At least you could demonstrate that their skill level had changed in those areas. Mm-hmm. Do you think and ho- hopefully that would translate into uh-huh. uh, that would translate into less incidents, but it's such a low frequency behavior to yeah. begin with. It's it, not like it happens twenty times a day. It yeah. happens once every six months or maybe more often for some severe cases. It's a it's a rarely occurring severe behavior problem. And it's a secretive behavior, yeah, so yeah. it doesn't always it doesn't always happen at an intensity or severity level where it gets the attention of other uh-huh. people, police and right. community, and so forth. Right. Uh, do you think things to need to I don't know to change in society? Uh, is there something socially that needs to change the way social services reacts, police, the law? Anything like that that needs to change that would help the problem? No, I haven't given that much thought. Um, Maybe, maybe just um, if you know. I mean, we try to do these sensitivity kinds of training in other areas, like in mental health, making the police more aware of um, what a psychotic episode looks like, for Uh example. I said making a sensitivity training that's been done in areas where you try to make people more aware of what psychotic behavior looks like, maybe an awareness where um, if they know mm-hmm. that um, the person's not dealing well with the situation, um, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I haven't given that too much thought. What do you think? When I've when I've discussed this with groups about domestic violence, I said that there's all kinds of problems that we maybe we just accept that we don't really like, but we kind of accept. Okay, this is the this is the way it is, and you know people go back to their abusive spouses, and and we just deal with it as best we can. But if the public becomes aware that this is a, a problem that could be defined by its, you know, it has a function, it can be measured in certain ways, and we can have interventions that could uh, reduce or eliminate the problem behavior, the public might have uh, a greater confidence in, in dealing with it. They may not so be so prone to turn a blind eye or just being accepting of it until it gets really, really bad, that that might be a benefit of approaching this from a behavioral point of view. That's That would be my spiel about it. Yeah, so we, uh, definitely if you could uh, demonstrate increased effectiveness mm-hmm. of this program compared to others, then you might get more, um, more buy-in mm-hmm. from, um, I don't know, donations to foundations or... You know, programs uh, more tax month, tax dollars going toward programs, but at least I don't think it would be any more expensive than right. the Duluth model. I right. mean, except for that 
I don't know, I conceptualize it as being one-on-one, more individualized, right. whereas the Duluth model is a group. group model. It's a group model. So, But maybe you could do it in a group format and yeah. do some role-playing and things like that. Yeah. They do behavioral interventions in, in group formats as well. Right, right. So, uh, this, Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just think, thinking along your lines of your idea and just trying mm-hmm. to... Think about what would be maybe more preventative stuff. Right. um, I was thinking that I was thinking a little bit about um, research by, are you familiar with research by Gottman? It's developmental research on couples and over the years. And he looked at couples and engaged, uh, had them do interchanges, discussions, and then measured these, a whole bunch of different behaviors. And he ended up identifying the four behaviors that are most predictive of couples' um, marriages falling apart. Oh, I have and, I have heard of this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was like contemptuous behavior, uh-huh. stonewalling, uh-huh. Um, criticism, and defensiveness were uh-huh. the four behaviors that were most predictive. And so, I would think that especially that contemptuous behavior, if you saw that early on, yeah. Uh, that just seems a very uh, pattern of uh, just at least one of the behaviors that I would consider um, just kind of predictive of that sort of coercive pattern. So I don't know, maybe you could do more preventative stuff if you, you know, offered couples, um, I don't know, couples training and have a... (laughs) how to communicate in a relationship constructively. Yeah. And they do have some things like that that are along those lines, but right. I don't see how you could put that in place. But maybe maybe some kind of couples training like that um, would be useful as part of, um, I mean, it, it, I, think that, I think that it's possible to teach cu- couples to have a good relationship, even if they come from a very dark place in terms of their their history yeah it could it could help prevent this cycle of generation after generation falling into an abusive pattern yeah 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 maybe you could even do something with the kids or something Uh as a (laughs) well let's not get carried away right Facebook page and other social media sites.